So hi everybody, nice to see you again. It's kind of nice to come together. I like this idea of coming together every week to explore. It's really sweet. So, um, as usual, we'll start with a sitting, you know. I brought along a little poem by an old Rumi poem. One of the things that I see as a real stumbling block in service is that people imagine that they have to be perfect before they start serving. Or they have to have it together, at least. And, you know, my experience is that if we wait for that, we probably won't do very much service. <laughs> so here's a good poem by uh, Rumi. It's called Your Defects. <laughs> I like it. He says, an empty mirror and your worst destructive habits, when they are held up to each other, that's when the real making begins. That's what, the, that's what art and crafting are. A tailor needs a torn garment to practice his expertise. A chunk of trees must be cut and cut again so they can be used in fine carpentry. Your doctor must have a broken leg to doctor. Your defects are the way that glory gets manifested. So in case we should think that we have to have it all together, that's Rumi reminding us that we already do. Okay, well, let's sit for a little bit and uh, enjoy that practice of sitting. Um, as we sit, um, I'd like to encourage you two things in the sitting this time. Tonight, just because our subject tonight, by the way, is to look at the, um, you know, we mean four characteristics of qualities that we need to look at in any Instead of just automatically sort of stretching out, you know, 
should say it, and see, as you might in basic mindfulness practice, what's the experience? Not just our idea about it, but what's the actual experience? Warm, cold, hard, soft, does it have any activity in it? What happens to it as you observe it? So that's physically. Emotionally, what kind of responses are coming up in the heart or in the emotional life in relationship to it? Is there an aversion to it at one time or another? Is there a grasping for some other experience? And in the mind, what sorts of thoughts are emerging? What kind of thoughts are there emerging? Not what's the storyline, but are they planning thoughts? Or are they remembering thoughts? Are they judging thoughts? Are they comparing thoughts? And we could be able to classify the kind of systems that's going on. What is that? So, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to sort of explore this evening. Partly, this is to begin to explore, in effect, what our relationship is with us. How we relate to it, or don't relate to it, as we do. You can't do it wrong. If you find yourself being adverse to the suffering, that's perfectly okay. That's not a problem. Let's just see, actually, what our relationship to, in this case, the comfort, probably mine is comfort. Let, let's find out what our relationship is. Okay? So one thing that can be helpful is to like this. We won't sit for very long, maybe 20 minutes. Do they think it's a good idea? Uh, let's see what our, um, let's see what we can discover about our relationship. Okay? Alright, so we'll sit for a bit. I'll ring a bell to begin and I'll ring some bells to end. Find a position to be comfortable. And remember, our intention here is not to tolerate or bear with something to get through it. It's to actually explore and discover. Okay? So be curious about when a particular sensation emerges. And be curious about your relationship physically, emotionally,
happens if you can let your attention penetrate the
walking around the institute. What happened? What's the notice? Can you put the lights up here? I'm going to have to have them on full blast. What? Let's see. That's good. So like, what, why do you think that works? Yeah, no, I think this is really wonderful and we can do this and we can have a sense of curiosity and the very same beginning's mind where people are experience. But you don't know it. And often we're harboring it without knowing it. Yeah? I know it, this is my old injury or whatever. Um, when these emotional responses become like the feelings, 
you, you seem desperate going into the sensation of physical sensation. What happened when you went into the field? Maybe you weren't able to do that. Now, I, I, I don't want to be too simplistic about this. I don't want to suggest that it, you know, if you have bone cancer, that all you have to do is enter into the sensation and it will dissolve. You know. But to a large extent, with a lot of the difficulties that we face on a daily basis, if you simply allow them, they actually go come and go quite easily. They only hang around when we got a hold of them. Or as you suggested, it's the same, the same action. Actually. Yeah, okay. Anybody else? Yeah, please. 
है What, we're, what I'm suggesting here is for those of you who are familiar with practice, it's kind of Buddhism 101. But, so we can sort of know that intellectually, and then there's the actual experience of it, right? So when you said you had a version, just so we don't get lost in jargon, what do you mean? Like in the inside your body kind of? So when your head was aching, your whole body did this and how did your whole body help the emotions but with the emotional state it was more difficult so why is it you see tighten in the body and tighten it sounds like you tighten mentally around it in some way so without having you're having to reveal anything about the emotional content I'm really curious why do you think it was more like that with the emotion, less like that with the head. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, you get skills. Huh? Mm. Yeah, okay. So that's part of it. We get, you know, we get techniques. But what is it that was more um, unpleasant, what's called, about the emotional state? Without you having to talk, I mean, if you want to, you want to do it, without you having to say anything about the story, what was unpleasant about the experience? Um, there's, in other words, there's a way in which we could have a story, let's say, for example, Somebody said something that was really offensive to us today. And so we have a story that we can roll around and take, like, oh, there's too dead on those jerks, and you know, that's the story. The experience is I feel isolated, or I feel, you know, diminished, or I feel alone, helpless, etc. That would be the emotional experience. So, what was the emotional, what was your emotional relationship with emotional state? You're calling it aversion, I'm not going to experience the physical experience of that. What's the emotional state? How do you feel about it? Did you hate it? Frustrated. Oh yes, you use that word before. Sorry. Frustrated. Mind, heart, mind, okay. 
Yeah, great. So there's something similar in both your cases that I want to say. One of the things has to do with how much we identify with state. So there's the physical experience, and then there's the relationship with it, and then there's the identification. So, when we have an experience of allowing these things, in effect, and this sounds, this sounds strange, but what we're actually doing is disidentifying. We're not disassociating. Disassociating would mean I don't feel it at all. I don't come near, I stay away from it. I cannot, I don't, you know, I transcend this one nonsense. Disidentification is I'm in contact, but I know it's not all that I am. Just say it that way. It's happening, it's passing through me, passing through awareness, but it's not all that I am. And that perspective alone enables us to have a different relationship. Just that perspective. And the more we practice that, the more able we are to do that with greater and greater difficulty. Greater and greater difficulty. And we can have very strong difficulty to find a way not disassociate, but not over-identify. When we over-identify, it comes who we are, and we've got to do something. Let's draw that out as part of our relationship. Anything else anyone wants to take a picture of the meditation? Please. Uh-huh. I once was invited to, do, to be part of a program at Carnegie Hall in New York. A few of us doing a kind of um, dialogue. I mean, 3,000 people in the audience, big hall. You know. And right before we were about to do it, the person who was moderating this asked me if I could need a meditation prior to this discussion. And I said, are you crazy? This is New York. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I went out on the stage, big, giant stage, you know, and this little pencil and microphone emerged out of the stage. And there it was, facing me. And I said, now, here we are in Carnegie Hall. We're going to do something very unusual for New York. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes in a crowd of people. I'm going to ask you not to speak. I'm going to ask you to be still for a while. And so we did this in New York for not a long time, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years. And I've been to Carnegie Hall many, many times. Great but this time, in Carnegie Hall, it's been beautiful sound I've ever heard in this time. It's really beautiful. It's like what we just saw. Yeah. So, um, I, I wanted us to practice it. I, I want to get more into our material tonight, but I wanted to just... Um, Give some, get some visceral experience of this because, you know, the biggest challenges that we have with suffering is a threefold actually. One is we identify with who we are. Because of that, we have habits about how we relate to it. And generally speaking, as you've pointed out, those habits are aversive in most cases. And so 
we wind up not staying with it. And so what we need something that would enable us to stay with it. That really is that's what enables us to stay with it. Before I launch into that, I'd like to just quickly ask, we had a homework assignment. I don't know if any of you did it, but the homework assignment was basically try to do an active service, one kind of simple active service, and notice what comes up. That was just basically the assignment. And I'm wondering, did any of you try and do that? What did you know? What did you know that came up about your own identity and role? Yes. That's right. That's right. Thank you for that question. service can come out of in such way, out of what I'm calling an interaction, and that's the experience, the problem. Now, any, anywhere in, the, in that experience, when we get identified with one character or another of ourselves, then the smugness comes, or something else comes, you know, the doubt. So in this case, in one of the other cases, it sounds like, oh, there was just an experience of enjoyment. Enjoyment experience of unity and our separation. That's in terms that life is joy. I woke and found that life is service. Access and behold. Service is not. Anybody else here? Yes. Great.
counteracting dogma with more dogma. So, you know, this, this is a really great observation, you know, come up with something. Oh, sometimes my generosity is a little bit more, it's very free-flowing, and sometimes my generosity is a little bit more conditioned. You know. And there's the very thing that is teaching about this, is rather, the way Mr. Dawson spoke about it, about paternalistic, actually, speaks about the regularly, keenly, and keenly giving, keenly giving people the highest. So it's a little paternalistic, I think. But, um, you know, beggarly uh, giving, we give the least. In kingly giving, we give the best, but expect thanks. And kingly giving, we give the best, but don't have any expectations. So, you know, all of them are generosity. And so we didn't want to eliminate any of them. But, you know, there is a different feeling. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a really great. I like the word you use, relax. That's great. Yeah, relax. Yeah. Relax. Because then it's not like you know we're not alert to the situation, seeing the meeting, but we're not active in our fixing the matter. I'm teaching recently. We were doing some work around suffering, and there was a, one fellow had a very, very big open, very, remember quite a traumatic event about the whole Sunday. Very, And in the midst of the sharing, he burst into tears. 
first of all, he was saying that he was talking about this thing in a way that was very. He was talking about something. It was clear to me that there was something else below the surface. So I began to inquire with him a little bit. And as I inquired, then this other thing emerged. And this question was open. Very, very fast. And while I was listening to him, and it was one of the most terrific stories you can imagine. You know, this was about his child and how he reacted to his children. While I was listening to him, I noticed something, which was that I also heard the birds outside the building that I was teaching them, and I could smell the lemons. Because this was happening also while I was listening to him. And there was internally feeling of kind of internal smile. Well, it wasn't, I didn't externally smile, you know, it was as good as I wasn't feeling any empathy. But actually I was, quite a bit. And yet I also felt acceptable. I was glad for what was open. Even though the situation he was describing was different, I was glad to have opened in that moment because I knew it was not open. So there was a kind of restfulness while I was doing very different Well, I want us to sort of do some particular kind of work tonight. Um, so, um, if it's okay with you, we'll move off of this exercise. So I'm glad to send you to it, and no doubt others would too, and have some interesting insights. And uh, I thought what I'd do is speak a little bit first about compassion itself, or the experience of compassion, and how it emerges, and why it emerges. And then we'll do some exercise. So, um, I brought myself some notes so I didn't forget what I wanted to say. Um, so, most of us have this idea, and I, I'm going to, by the way, um, say this in the beginning. Uh, one of the influences in my life is, is, is the teachings of Hamid Al-Mahdi. I know some of you know Eugene's teaching in the system. So I'm going to draw a little bit on Hamid's work. In fact, I'd like to get all the text to Hamid. Uh, he's like one of my teachers, and I studied with him all the time. Hamid, Al-Mahdi, A-L-M-A-S, Al-Mahdi. Um, so, I started to say that one of the things that happens for us in relationship to suffering, for most of us, common, is that we have some fear that if we enter it, either our own or other people's, in some way we'll become overwhelmed. And so, because of that doubt or that concern, we often don't enter it. We keep suffering at arm's length in one way or another. Um, the antidote to this fear is compassion. Compassion uh, has in it also the quality of wisdom. In fact, these two, wisdom and compassion, are actually not separate. If we have compassion without wisdom, it's just mushy. If we have wisdom without compassion, it gets a little brittle and intellectual. This is knowledge. So, um, So, compassion is 
impact at the beginning, I'll say, is the capacity for us to stay with suffering without moving away. Our own or the suffering of others. Compassion, in fact, arises out of the experience of suffering. That's how it shows up. Now, it's true, it seems true, to me at least in the world, that there's no shortage of suffering in the world. Everyone agrees. Um, well, if this is the case, why isn't there more compassion? Compassion rises out of suffering. A lot of suffering in the world. Why isn't there more compassion? Reasonable question to ask. Um, and probably we could come up with lots of different answers to it. But one answer that we could work with for the sake of our discussion this evening is simply that, as we've been talking about, we often don't let ourselves, we don't allow the suffering to arise, or we don't allow ourselves to move close to suffering. And so no... So when we keep a distance from suffering, we actually don't feel compassion. As whereas when we come close to suffering, compassion, we tend to move. Um, we are marvelous in our capacity to distract ourselves from suffering. We have unbelievably well-developed, well-honed strategies. I mean, just think, you know, you can name these for yourself. The strategies that you have to keep suffering at arm's length. You know. Whether it's, you know, to uh, distract yourself with activity or uh, to rationalize suffering or to intellectualize suffering in some way. There's all kinds of ways that we have to distract ourselves. Um, oftentimes, it seems to me that we opt with suffering, we opt for temporary relief or comfort over truth. We accept some limited perspective of the situation or we accept some limited perspective of ourselves. We maintain a small view of ourselves. Um, or we simply might cling to what is familiar to us in order to reassert our sense of control when overwhelm starts to appear. So, I was just teaching this weekend on the subject of suffering and compassion, or actually suffering and transformation. We have our year-long class, and we were working with people on this subject. And these are all healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, therapists, etc., who one would think are adepts at working with suffering. Um, however, they had all the same strategies that you and I have sitting here. You know, the, the classic example that's used in meditation practice is um, there's a pain in your body somewhere, let's say in your back or shoulders or something. And what do we do in meditation? Well, we have three basic strategies that we commonly use. The first is that we simply ignore that it exists. We pretend it's not there. No big deal. You know? We have that kind of notion. Um, and if you really look closely at the attempt to ignore, and you really watch it carefully, you'll often see that it's driven by fear. Yeah. It's a way to not try to not acknowledge it. The second strategy that we use frequently is if we can't ignore it, we try to contain it. Either if it's a physical thing to some dimension of our body or if it's an emotional mental state, we try and contract around it. Either we build a story around it or we pretend that it's not such a big deal. We give it a sort of sidelong glance. I say it's like the look my mother used to give me in the department store. We look at it and we say, don't act out. You know? and, and that's another strategy we have. Yeah? Okay. 
Now, if none of those, if neither of those two are working, we often use a third strategy. And those of us who meditate, oh, we're really good at this. We send metta into our pain. Yeah? A metta, for those of you not familiar with the term, often means loving kindness. So we send loving kindness into our pain. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a very good idea, and it can be a very skillful strategy. However, frequently we are sending metta into our pain in order to get rid of the pain. I love you, now go away. Yeah? So, what's common to all three of those strategies, you see, is there's no real allowing of the experience. There's no sensitivity to the experience. There's no real welcoming of the experience in any way. What we've been doing is making a project out of it, in one fashion or another. Now, um, for me, the word sensitivity is really an important word when speaking about compassion, because in my experience, anyway, it might be different for you, but in my experience, compassion knows through sensing. It knows through sensing, literally, physically sensing. And then there's an emotional and mental capacity to it, the component rather of compassion. But it senses the, the appearance of pain or something. Uh, in the strategies that I've mentioned, there's very little sensitivity. And so there's also no intimacy with the experience. Um, in fact, there's a closing down of intimacy, or there's a closing down of sensitivity in those strategies, and some of the other strategies. Now, the word compassion is, you know, most often defined as suffering with others. That's the common way we talk about it. But for me, the word with is so important. And the whole definition, the word with is the most important, a little bit of the middle. Because it implies to me a certain kind of intimacy. An intimacy with myself, with the suffering itself, or with the other, and with the other. So this intimacy is really an important element in the experience of compassion. Now, another word that, um, or another way we could think about is, think about this, is how does intimacy come about, for example, in our relationship? And it seems to me that intimacy comes about through what we could call a kind of esteem. So compassion is not just an emotional response to suffering, it's an attunement to suffering, it's a sensitivity to suffering, it's an intimacy with suffering. And it has no choice, it has no gender, um, it just simply is a companion to and this business about it not having should or genders is important. Um, we cannot help a thing or a person if we are busy trying to change it. Let's just make that a clear thing. We cannot help a person or a thing if we are busy trying to change it. So compassion expresses the gentleness, the kindness, it's necessary, and I'm going to come back to your story about the 14-year-old girl, it expresses the gentleness, the kindness that's necessary to allow the soul, or the individual's heart, as it says, to relax. Or our own heart and soul to relax. Now, without the presence of compassion, the individual, whether that's you or the other, will not be able to open to their suffering. They simply cannot do it as an intellectual exercise. 
when compassion is present, then it becomes clear to the other or to yourself that it's in a way time or it's okay we call it open to whatever it is that's hurting I mean don't we know that when we're with our friends and we can tell if they're sitting there in judgment about us you know when we're running our tape about a story about our husband or wife or partner etc um, we were with Ram Das on, on, on Saturday night and you know he often uses the term soul to soul meeting which is a way to talk about it that we can either be identified with, with our incarnation, with our personality, or we can be identified with, you know, his language, with our soul, with each other's soul. Now this sounds pretty high for but let me give you a, a clear example of this. Uh, some years ago in the hospice, we had two men with AIDS who were both dying. They lived down the hall from each other, in that hospice house. And Rick also had had a stroke, and so he was facing a word playing problem. He had difficulty speaking. And he, had a, he was paralyzed on one side. He had bad limbs. Really hard. He was very, very frustrated. Really frustrated. He couldn't communicate with me. Stephen, on the other hand, lived down the hall. And Stephen, when you walked into his room, it felt like you were walking into a sanctuary. Some kind of breath. And he was almost transparent. Literally, he weighed about 90 pounds, but also his spirit was so visible. So Stephen was dying, and I went to Rick's room and I said, Rick, if you want to say goodbye to Stephen, today's the day to do it. You've got to go in the chair And um, I said, yeah, I really want to do it. So I said, okay. So I helped him down the hall, and we went into Stephen's room and sat Rick down on the edge of Stephen's chair. I didn't do any intervention, but I did stand at the doorway and watched. And I watched these two men, who really didn't know each other terribly well, by the way, enter into a silent kind of communication. And without saying a word, it became very evident to me, at least, that there was a kind of thing in there. Stephen was feeling himself. Now, Rick was looking at his own destiny. He knew he was going to go and Stephen had done his homework, and Stephen was quite open, extraordinary. And in this kind of mutual exchange, it seemed to flow between us. Not a word spoken by the way. I just watched. So moved me to watch this. Beautiful. I had a great section for both of them, even to talk about And, um, and I remember that we had tried so hard to find a way into it, and we failed in the world. We had gotten every possible, we got computer things, we got all kinds of things to help me to get and everything was downstairs. In 20 minutes, Stephen had come. He that 20 minutes, and he And Stephen said, yeah, that was like that. And they smiled, and Rick got up and went back to his room, and Stephen died there. I felt like this was a soul to soul. Stephen had 
no agenda. He wasn't trying to make him better. He just saw his soul, spoke directly to it, alive and present, and ripped it out. We could say a capacity, or to me, we say a desire. But to really be guidance, this is going to be guidance. The guidance has to care absolutely for who you are, for what matters most to you. Otherwise, don't feel like guidance. Otherwise, in other words, the guide has to see in the moment what's most important. Otherwise, you'll feel like the attention is kind of But some years ago, there was a woman who was dying, and she and her husband were sleeping together, and she wanted to get married. And I said, and she asked me if I would marry her. And I said, sure. I have to. I said, but we got to plan the wedding. You know, we can't just say you're going to get married and do it. So we planned everything. I had the wedding for her. So I was very And so we talked about the cake, about what dress she was wearing. Did she stand? Did she sit in a wheelchair? Did she do it in a bed? How did we do this? Mostly, I just had a sense that this wedding was a lot more than just marrying this guy. It was a bigger, it was a bigger archetype. And so I listened a lot to her about everything about the wedding, what she wanted. And always there was this slight agitation. And then finally, in the middle of one of these discussions about talking about the truth, she said, I just want my mom to be saved. She doesn't. Now, her mom had died a number of years before, so I couldn't be that. But what I had to realize was this is what was most important to her. It was actually more important than her husband, that seemed to be husband. It was more important than her cancer. It was more important than her cancer treatment. It was certainly more important than her for the wedding day. And so we then had to figure out a way to bring her mother there. That's what we did. We figured out ways to symbolically bring her mom there. When our attention, our non-judgmental attention, is attuned, and we'll use this word again, to exactly where the other is, or where we are hearts are, and given mind, then it feels seen, it feels cared for, and it opens. Without that, it has no reason to okay? So the attention not has to just be listening to the storyline, but it has to be so attuned, um, cognizant of the very specifics of the situation or the individual's life in a given moment, but also attuned to what matters most to that person in this moment. Otherwise, again, the person won't feel the attention is addressing them. And this doesn't matter if you're dealing with a dying person or a kid in kindergarten. This 
applies in both places. They will feel like the attention is addressing where they should be or what should be happening in the moment instead of what is happening in the moment. And so the compassion expresses itself as a kindness. We always think of this quality as kindness, but there's another way in which it expresses itself, and I would call it which sometimes spoken of is a kind of empathetic precision. Empathetic precision. That's a funny word. It sounds almost mechanical, actually. But in other words, a preciseness that really sees what matters most. It's not just that you adjust the person in bed, it's that you get the sock on just right in that moment. It's not about doing it right, but what matters to you. Now, that's part, for me, that's part of the beauty and function of compassion. Now, what normally passes for compassion is kind of kind counsel, emotional connection. Um, or an attempt to remove the conditions that seem to be contributing to the suffering. Um, but, okay, this is hard to talk about. What, what, one of the things that's important is that you're looking at what is the situation right now, recognition of where this person is in a given situation, but there's also another recognition. This is harder to speak to, but it's a recognition of where this soul is in relation to their own deep nature. I'll come back to that. That's a big statement. I'll come back to that. Before that, I want to talk about one other thing. And that is that we have the notion that, and it's a misunderstanding to get compassion, that compassion is about making someone feel safe. And we often think about making someone feel safe as arranging all the conditions so that they feel safe. Right? Do you have that idea? That's, for example, we get everything just right in the space, in the room. It's good if you can do that. But, you know, for example, I work with people who are dying, and dying does not feel particularly safe, and you cannot stop it from happening. So, you know, if my job was to get the conditions right, I would somehow have to stop the dying from happening. can't do that. Um, so, Compassion is not about helping the person to feel that there's no danger. When I become, when I am available, truly available to someone, as Stephen was to this story, the person feels a company. You feel like you are a trustworthy presence. When you are a trustworthy presence, they will go to places that would have normally seemed frightening simply because they know they're not going there anymore. So it isn't about getting all the conditions right in this case. It's whether you are a trustworthy person, whether that's to yourself or to another. All right. I want to... I'll talk to one more thing about this thing I mentioned a moment ago. Hamid tells a very good story, actually. It's a good illustration. I'll use it. And he says that 
he was working with a woman who was very, very abused by her father. And part of his job, his compassionate response, was to help her recognize that it was normal to feel tremendous alienation, to uh, be very hurt by this, to be very angry with the father, uh, to want to even prevent this was perfectly normal. And that was one level of the response. But compassion recognizes that the hurt or the anger um, is there, but there's another level of pain. And the other level of pain, in this case, you could say, is that this woman felt cut off from what was most precious and dear in her life. Her relationship with soul, to God in this case. She didn't feel like she had access to it because she felt so damaged. And so part of what compassion does is it recognizes that too. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to necessarily solve both those problems, but compassion holds both those things to be part of the experience. Now, having said this, it's dangerous to say this because people imagine that oh, all things can be handled by some kind of spiritual transcendence or helping people see where their soul is in relation to the universe not what I'm suggesting. Attunement is a feeling that um, you really want to know what's hurting the other person. You want to know everything. And you do that because you care. Now, most of us here in the room and elsewhere out there on the street actually don't believe that people want to care about them. We actually don't believe that. We think, yeah, I know, they're being nice, but we have a good response. So compassion, as I experience it with myself and others, is a kind of smuggling up, I want to say, close to pain. They really, really close to sensing it, actually almost rubbing up against it. Um, it's about staying present when the going gets rough, not leaving the room. It's about being present in the territory of unanswerable questions. Now, I always feel like I should give a warning, put a warning label on compassion. Particularly for those of us who are experiencing it in a fresh or new way. And that is because, in my experience anyway, when you start to really feel the emergence of compassion, a lot of suffering comes up. A lot of suffering, tends, you tend to be a magnet for suffering. So some of those people don't want to be compassionate. That's because suffering, we could say, yours and the suffering of others, wants to expose itself to the feeling agents of loving kindness. And so, People sense it in this. They want to come because it happens to me. I see it all the time. Um, I, I've told a story before, but I'll be useful here. Um, years ago, I was teaching a retreat in um, Germany on grief and forgiveness. 200 people, three days, in the and we were doing a lot of work around grief, and it got very, very, very big. The grief in the room. It was huge, in fact. And I turned to my translator, who was a co-teacher with me, and I said, what have I done? 
thought I said that. And she said, she looked at me like, if you don't know what you've done, how are we going to get through this? You know? And I said to the group, we've opened up something very big. And we have to find something bigger than it. And the only way we're going to do this is by evoking what is bigger. And we can only do that, one way to do that, I should say, is a ritual. And so I said, tomorrow we'll make a ritual. And you'll come in and we'll build an altar. And he said, well, how will we build an altar? I said, I don't know. You're going to figure that out. But don't think somebody else is going to do it. Everybody has to be responsible. And so in the morning I came in and I sat in the back of the room and somebody brought in a card table and then they put over a cloth and somebody put a candle on it and flowers. Then people started bringing pictures on it. This altar was released beyond the door. How big it became? It became huge. It took hours, three hours to build the altar. It was just table after table and people putting things on and I sat in the back of the room and then I came to the front of the room and this altar was done. You know, one of the things I've learned about rituals is they have a power unto themselves and when you start one, you better get out of the way. And so, um, I sat in there and I thought, now what do I do? I don't know. And I said, well, would somebody be willing to tell me what they put up on the altar? And the woman raised her hand she said, she said, it's not for Otto and he died in the war and we never had service for him and I wanted to bring him and I said well Uncle Otto you're very welcome and she said and then somebody else said she said I want so this is my brother he was in a drug deal he was beaten up she brought him a beautiful picture two pictures of her brother from beaten to a pole and she had found him and also a picture of them as four and five year olds on a picture card She went through the whole day and people telling stories. One family, seven stories. It was unbelievable. And every time they would do it, you could feel more and more compassion in the world. Because the suffering was being bad. And then someone said, could we sing? And I said, yeah, you could sing. Sure. And so they said, what do you keep with your song? I said, oh no. I said, you have to come to well, what song? I don't know. You'll figure it out. It's just in Germany because so many other songs have been you know, taken by the church of the Nazis and they didn't feel like they find a common song. It's been quite a while. And then they found one and they sang it. And they said, could we stand and sing it? I said, sure. You know, stand and sing And you could just feel the connectivity. In the deepest sense, Feeling a particular pain is not the primary path of compassion. I think it is. The compassionate attention um, must address the real life needs of fear or pain or whatever else is there. But it does it from a larger perspective, one that understands the true nature of feeling. Now, this isn't like you have to think of a larger perspective. Compassion provides you guidance. Now, sometimes the presence of compassion heals the pain right away. It's done. Like some of you felt that some tenderness emerged in relationship to physical stuff. It's dissolved. Grass can dissolved. Sometimes that doesn't work that way. Sometimes what compassion does is remain with something that's very, very painful. Uh, and it stays with it in such a way that it allows us to 
tolerate that which uh, what would otherwise be completely intolerable. And, we, and compassion does this as a factor or capacity in us in order for a deeper truth to reveal Oh, a year or so, a guy was with a very dear friend of mine who'd been suffering a long time with an illness. We were good friends. We worked together for a long time. He went into the hospital, into an intensive care, emergency room in intensive care, and he came back and he said, Frank, I'm not going back there. I'm not going back there. And I said, are you sure? He said, I'm sure. I said, well, we'll see. I said, well, what is it that keeps you from wanting to go back? He said, scared the hell out of me. And so with all the work we've done, I still was here. I said, yeah. I said, I don't want to do that. He was thinking it was only the condition. And I turned to him and I said, you know, this fear is not going to go away. And he said, I've waited for a while. That's the most comforting thing I've ever told me. And what I was suggesting was that this part of him that was afraid would always be afraid. always be afraid. So we had to find something larger than that. We could divide it. Not a bypass. Something bigger that would also include the spirit. Just as we were experiencing in the sort of meditation moment. And the intelligence, I'll say, of compassion is that it brings forward a kindness that's actually not trying to get rid of the suffering. It is enabling us to do with it until it reveals itself to a deeper truth. And this goes completely counter to the wishes of the ego. The ego wants to get away from pain, compassion wants to do this. Because it understands that without the willingness open to the pain, Feel whatever is there, you never know the truth. Real truth. So compassion, well, this is why compassion requires us to touch what hurts. Touch what hurts. Service not only of relieving suffering, but discovering truth. 
particular way in which our meaning, our consciousness, shows itself. Yeah, truth. I don't mean uh, like some ultimate truth, like the truth, like, like a religion, some religions have to corner market on the truth. I mean the truth of this moment, the truth of the situation. When you were studying, somebody was talking about the, the, their sensation in their body, and then when they watched it really closely, it started to dissolve. We saw the truth of impermanence. We saw the truth of this is the nature of this experience. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by Not necessarily, no, because the re- part of the reason you're suffering was that you imagined, as you were imagining, this is going to go on forever. This isn't going to stop. Or you might have known it intellectually, but it wasn't translated down to, you know, the universe. So, this was a big kind of discussion of compassion we could speak today on this, but I'm trying to broaden our understanding of compassion to be much more than just, first of all, an emotional response or a sympathetic response or even an empathetic response. Compassion is deeper than sympathy and empathy. Much deeper. And it resides in us and emerges as a skillful means, as a guidance, as a direct response. Now it gets obscured by our identification with the experience, defenses of one kind or another. But if we are willing, we will often see, we will begin to feel, all I can say, is a better way to say it, feel the arising of something. Now we may turn away from it, but there it is arising anyway. Okay. Now, I want us to do an exercise in a minute to sort of explore this a little bit more, but before I do that, I'm curious to know. I just laid out a whole big thing. Uh, maybe you have a question or a disagreement or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I use them that way. I said to the loving, the healing agent of loving kindness. Uh, compassion, loving kindness, joy, equanimity, towards all hearts, they're all facets of love. So, they're particular unique expressions of love. Um, and they have, uh, they have, let's say, a different role to play, but they're all exactly the same thing. Yes. Like war and abuse and Yes. Yes. And so I'm wondering where the compassion goes. Right. Well, um, you know, the fact that compassion is part of our innate human being doesn't mean that we're always in contact with it. So when we don't have much contact with suffering, in other words, we don't let it in, we don't have much experience of compassion. You know, it's like people say to me, I've stopped reading the newspaper, I've stopped watching television is just too much. And I say, oh, I think you should go back and read the newspaper some more. I think reading the newspaper is compassion practice. It's actually allowing, oh my God, today, 
this is what happened in Kenya. You know? Today, this is what happened in San Francisco. So that I let this suffering in. Now, if, I think, if I'm in the place where I think I've got to fix it all and get rid of it all, and that's not compassion. That's just... That's my strategies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm not sure if it's any worse now than it ever was, but it certainly appears this way. And um, yes, I believe that that, that that is a common practice. And what I was saying a moment ago is, you know, we do that in the minutiae minutia of our lives just by distracting ourselves. For example, we all do this at some degree. We distract ourselves from suffering as opposed to actually allowing ourselves to have a relationship with suffering. Remember this? Did I tell the story here about the telephone pole last week? I was talking about this. I said, when you go towards suffering, that's always where the healing is found, in the middle of the suffering. We keep looking for the answer someplace else. We have to go into the middle of the suffering to find where the answer. So I said this in a group up somewhere in the rural northwest, and the guy said, that's like telephone poles. And I said, what? He said, telephone poles. I said, I don't understand. He said, oh, I used to install telephone poles. He said, when I did it, I put these poles in the ground, they were 40 feet high, and he said, and he started to move them like this, you know, swaying. He said, and I said to my partner, first day on the job, he said, if that pole starts to fall, he said, I'm running like hell that way. He said, but his partner was an old timer. And his partner said, oh no, you don't want to do that. He said, if that pole starts to fall, you want to go right up to it and put your hands on it. He said, it's the only safe place to be. Now, we're always running in the other direction. We get hit in the back of the head, surprised by suffering. What he was suggesting, quite literally, but if we were to take it as a metaphor for our own hearts, for example, if we were to put our own hands on our own hearts tenderly, we would understand, actually, that's the safest place to be. And this action. So I agree with you that the world seems to be doing this, and when they do this, we have more and more suffering. And when people are doing this, I have compassion. Because it really hurts to do this. You know? It's like Saturday night we were talking to Ram Dass and he said he has, you know, pictures of all the great teachers and saints on his altar, but he also has a picture of George Bush. He said, you know, he did this as a practice to sort of get to know George. But he said he noticed in the mornings he would you know, it didn't happen right away. He said in the morning he'd come in and say, Oh, good morning, Jesus. Oh, good morning, Buddha. Oh, good morning, Mahamai. Good morning, Maharishi. Hi, George. <laughs> you know, and then, and then, you know, after a while he began to really be able to say hello to George too in a more welcoming way. So, all of us do this at some, absolutely. And I think this is indeed the cause of a lot more suffering and the way we compound suffering. At least he was saying hi. It was a good start. And we could do that with ourselves. We don't have to like, we might not be able to get all warm and fuzzy with our pain right away. But we could say hi. Hi, see you there. That's a good beginning. Was there another question or comment? Yes. Yeah, go ahead.
Yeah, I was saying in the ritual. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, perhaps I shouldn't have used the word creating because it leads us to a kind of strategy. Uh, evoking might have been a better word. Um, uh, the experience of pain and suffering is often one of contraction. It's a tightening around. And so, when I gave the meditation instruction today, I said, see if you can enter into it. But if it feels too much to enter into it, just feel the circumference around the pain. Yeah? So that there's space for the pain to exist. So that would be an evoking, really, uh, of a compassionate relationship to the pain. In my case, I was using a ritual to do that for a whole room of people. But we were, trying, we were evoking something that was bigger, which was our compassion, our, our love for the people that, in this case, the, the love of the people in the audience for those that they had lost. They were contracted around the loss. They had forgotten their love. And so we were evoking that. Yes? What's the name of the song? Oh, I don't remember. It's a German song, and I don't know it. Yeah. This is reminding me of something I heard Ram Dass say 30 years ago about death. Oh, yeah? Which is, you don't have to worry about it. It's perfectly safe. Yeah. Well. Comment on that. Depends on what we're identified with. If we're identified with a soul, with our individual consciousness, with our true being, it's perfectly safe. But if we're identified with this, it doesn't feel safe at all. It feels very dangerous. So it depends where the identity lies. And he's, he was referring to, he was trying to point us in the direction of identifying with soul. His language, not mine. All right, yes, quickly, and then we'll do an exercise. Uh-huh. And I usually visit her once or twice a week, and it's always the same. Huh. You know, someone described her as she's like a cat that's free. Uh. She's got this, you know, fear. Yeah. Uh. And now she's basically skin and bone. Uh-huh. Very little body left there, yeah. and the fear is so tangible. Uh. And, um, lately, I've been telling her when she says, "Oh, I can't take it anymore. The pain, the pain." I've been saying to her. You've been struggling for so long, and you, you're still here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really much stronger mm-hmm. than than. From what you're saying, it seems to me that that's a, a coping strategy for me. Maybe. Maybe. You know, what's wrong with saying, "Oh God, this must be so hard." I mean, in, in this case, the first thing I would do is check, is her pain really being well-managed? If not, it ought to be. You know, there's, there's ways to manage people's physical pain, and we ought to make sure that she has access to that. But assuming that that's being done, that doesn't mean that people don't have suffering. So then my, my, the way I work with people is to say, this must really hurt. And then there's an attunement. Then they say, Oh, you're with me. You're not trying to get me to be someplace else. Now, that doesn't mean we both have to sink into a hole there, but we have an attunement first. We have to have an attunement before anything else can happen. 
Otherwise, they don't, I'm not trustworthy. Yeah, I'm just somebody else trying to tell them not to have the experience that they're having. Yeah, so have the experience. I trust that as we come, as she comes toward that experience, something, if we help, something else will emerge. Something more tender or kind or gentle. Because that's in our nature for that to emerge. Let's try an exercise. And, uh, oh boy, I've gone too much talking. We should make these longer, these sessions. Can we make it a little bit longer tonight? Just a little bit longer? Because I'd like us to try something. And, and this is straight out of for me. So do it, to do this, you need to find a partner. Actually, Jennifer and I will demonstrate quickly. So pull your chair up here for a second, Jennifer. Um, we're going to do um, a very simple exercise, which is what we often call a repeating question. You can sit right here. It's okay. And um, Jennifer's going to ask me a question. And um, in asking me, she's going to try and ask me in such a way that she really cares. But she's not going to like lean into it too much. You know what I mean? She's just going to be... Jennifer. And so what Jennifer's got to do is, when she's asking me the question, she's got to give me her attention, but I want her to keep at least half of her attention in her own experience, in her own body, heart, and mind. So that she's tracking what's happening for her, so she doesn't lose sight of that, while she's also listening to me. And my job is to answer her question spontaneously. Spontaneously doesn't mean quickly, it just means honestly, uncensored. And I'm going to check what's happening in my head, like what I'm thinking about it. I'm going to check what's happening in my heart, what I'm feeling about it. And I'm going to check what's happening in my body, what I'm sensing about it. And I might answer from any one of those places, or maybe all three. We'll see. I don't know. And I might answer from my history, in other words, things I already know about it. But I want mostly to try and discover something else. I want to discover what's true or what's most present right now. Okay? So the question that Jennifer is going to ask me is, tell me a way you avoid your suffering. Okay? That's the question. And my job will be to try and answer that uh, as best I can. Okay, so we're both going to get centered for a second so we feel our bodies and hearts and minds. And the, remember, the, the, the work here is to try and discover as opposed to make your, just repeat your laundry list. Please tell me, Frank, a way that you avoid your suffering. Well, just as you said it, I realized that my eyes went down, I started looking to the ground, and I started thinking about it. So one of the ways that I avoid my suffering is I think. I try and think my way through it, actually. Thank you. Please tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Sometimes I could, I could just feel then like there's a way in which I tighten in one part of my body. I could feel here my lower left side. It was this kind of tightening like, like I build a little compartment or storehouse for it there. Thank you. Frank, please tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. I eat haagen <laughs> Thank you. Please tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Well, I realized just then I used a kind of humor to distract, actually, so I wouldn't have to look too closely 
at my experience. Thank you. Please tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Sometimes I take care of others. Stop there, okay? You see? So it's not just a laundry list. You, you, that's fine if you have some of that, but it's also you're seeing what's true right now. So that means you really have to be in contact with yourself and be willing to speak honestly to what's going on. Now you notice that Jennifer did something that she, she's done this with me before and she remembered an instruction that I left out, which is that she said thank you at the end of my answer, and that's really important. So the questioner asks the question in the same way, and the question is, tell me a way you avoid your suffering. Tell me a way you avoid your suffering. Please don't change the question. Just leave it like that. And then say thank you. All right? That's the whole exercise. You can't do it wrong. You're going to do it for um, just five minutes. You're going to do this for five minutes. The person is going to keep asking the question. You're going to answer. And then I'm going to ring a bell. And just stop. Don't have a conversation. Don't have it. It's not a conversation, merely. Jennifer's job was to witness my exploration. And by her attunement, by her witnessing, it enabled me to go a little bit more. It helped me to stay honest. Help me to stay clear. So the job of the questioner is not just to ask a question, but to really be witness. So that it's a, it, there's a kind of attunement here. And that enables me or helps me to go explore a little bit more. Okay? So it's not a conversation. It's not you nodding your head. Yeah, I do that too. It's not approving or disapproving. Neither one. Okay? All right. We can spread out. You can move your chairs to other parts of the room. Just get a partner. Go as quickly as you can to those so we don't waste too much time. <clears throat> when you get there, just be in silence for a minute and then begin. Everybody remember the question? Tell me a way you avoid your suffering. If you don't have a partner, raise your hand and then you'll get one that way. Okay. Anybody does not have a partner, raise your hand. Does not have a partner. There you go. Look for each other. Worked out perfect. Always does. Anybody else does not have a partner? Not have a partner? Okay, come on, do it with me. Bring a chair over. So, just decide who's going to ask the question, then let yourself be in silence for a minute, okay? Once you decide to be in silence, make contact with your feet, your legs. Your butt in the chair, the upper part of the body, maybe take a few intentional breaths. Because remember, as the questioner, you're doing something really valuable here. You're posing a question, which in itself is helpful, and your presence is helpful because it's encouraging the other person to explore. And then your thank you is a simple appreciation for whatever has been offered without approval or disapproval. So when you're ready, begin. And then I'll ring a bell when five minutes is up. Okay, I'm going to ask you. Tell me a way you avoid your suffering. Shut down. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Um, I stand to fight. 
about other things. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. I forget, I go to sleep. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Um, I, I feel really dissociated. <laughs> right now? Mm-hmm. Good, so pay attention to that. Huh? Pay attention to that. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. I just don't feel. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Um, I just get confused. You know, feel into your body more. Mm-hmm. Your answers are coming from here. Mm-hmm. So that's not bad, but keep feeling in more. Okay, so just see if there's something else here too. Thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Um, I yeah yeah um, <clears throat> my my stomach pain actually. Uh Okay, thank you. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Um, I just. Um, I don't know, I just want to run away. <laughs> yeah, it's very nervous. Uh-huh. Thank you. So I'm going to add one more instruction for you. You're getting the graduate course okay. <laughs> Which is that when you give an answer, see what your relationship is to what you answer. In other words, if you say you feel anxious, just see how you're feeling about being anxious in that moment or how it actually feels to be anxious. Mm-hmm. And see what you can explore more. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. Out. 
So just pause for a moment. No conversation. Now we're going to switch roles. And I want to add an instruction, which I didn't add the first time, which is that when you answer, let's say you say, oh, I tighten in my belly. I want you to look and see what's your relationship to your answer. In other words, how are you feeling about what you just said? Ooh, I don't even like acknowledging that. Oh, ouch, as I feel that in my belly, it really hurts. And in other words, you can really... So in other words, as you're discovering your relationship, not just you naming your strategy, but what happens in you as you become aware of this strategy? What happens in you? Okay? Do you get judgmental? Do you feel tender toward yourself? What happens in you? You can report that if you like, but at least notice it. All right? So, we'll just reverse role. Same question. Tell me a way that you avoid your suffering. And remember to thank you. Okay? All right. When you're ready, begin. Would you like to keep going or would you like to... Okay, go ahead. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to take the microphone off now. So that we don't get your
Okay, now, one minute each, what was the highlight of that experience for you? What did you like about it or not like about it? Did you discover something that you didn't know before? How was it just to do it? That's the question. Those are all the questions. But you pick one that you like. One minute just talking to one another, just in normal conversation. What did you discover in the exercise? Okay? Yeah, each get a minute. Poetic. <laughs> How about you? Um, I, I think I discovered, I, um, you know, I always, when we, you know, when you have those things, you have to break them into groups and stuff. I always hate that. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, because it kind of puts you on the spot. Yeah. But I think it was really valuable. I mean, I think just to keep going. Yeah. You know, because sometimes I'll go so far and then I'll go so far and go. So you've got some encouragement to go further. What was it? You provided that encouragement. What? What, what allowed you to do that? Um, I think you? you just kept asking. Uh-huh. And there was something about looking at you and uh-huh. seeing 
I like really looking into your eyes, I really felt like, I, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> what did you feel? Um, like I felt like, um, like you were really hearing what I was saying. You know, like it mattered. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And one of the answers that you gave was, I don't think I listened to myself. Right. Yeah, that was, I think, a big, I think that's when it kind of shifted. Yeah. I see that I felt better. That I realized that, that I don't. Yes. Yes. Even noticing that is a kind of tenderness. It's kind of a rise of compassion. Right. Right. Oh, I haven't been listening. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I promise I'll listen now. Yeah. So when somebody else is doing it with us, uh-huh. When someone else is doing it with us, we can feel the effect of that. Right. And then we're more likely to do it with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So something as simple as that would be a good takeaway from this exercise. Yeah. As well as identifying some of your strategies. Right, right. Do they work? No, I don't think so. Isn't it amazing how much time and energy we put into them? <laughs> Yeah. And so much of it's so unconscious, such yeah. a habit, you know, yeah. conditioned over yeah. years and years and years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and suddenly you realize, mm-hmm. why am I spending so much time with it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm sorry, but I have to start again. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I apologize. <laughs> Hey, okay, look, right from where you are, because we have to stop in just a second. I'm sorry for that. Um, but can anybody just say very briefly, what was it like to do it? What, what was good? What was not good? What did you discover? Anything? Anybody want to say, just briefly? How was it to do that? Yeah. Yeah, so in identifying our strategies that we use to avoid suffering, we actually are in the process of not doing it in that moment. Or, at least we're, if we are doing it, we're seeing how we're doing it. And the, the observing of it is in itself the beginning of the emerging of compassion, wisdom and compassion. Yes? You were? Yes, a lot of times people do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you tell him to shut up? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you see the suffering and all that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that's one of the ways that we compound our suffering is we start to, you know, kvetch about it. You know, we start to tell stories about it or we get anxious about it or we plan into the future about it in some way. You know, get away. What's he doing? He's asking you a question, right? You could have said, I don't know. But I just said, be honest, right? But yes, so one of the things that, one of the, things that the exercise brings up is our... Um, not wanting to go near it. All right, we gave you one answer already. That's enough. Now, let's get on with life. Yeah. 
That's one of the things we do. Yes, what else? Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I've got my stick. I've got my material. Yeah, good for you. I'm so glad you saw that. Good for you. So I, I'm, I want to ask you sincerely right now, when you notice that, how do you feel? When you notice that you have a five minutes of material and you realize there's a kind of resistance here that you're going to make me look at, like you, in your language, you're going to make me look at something I don't want to look at. Uh huh. So you notice something about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and this is understandable because these are habits, but I'm, so that's, that's your understanding of it. I'm going to ask one more time. When you understand that, and you see that I have this habit and I have this way of managing it, how does it actually feel? How do you feel about that? So there's some disappointment, uh huh. So as you feel disappointed, what happens right now? Uh-huh. Oh. What's the warmth feel like? Oh. What kind of nice feeling? Oh, that sounds like acceptance to me. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. Beautiful. That sounds like acceptance to me, or at least at some level. And this is exactly the process I'm describing. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to get, oh, I'll willing to look a little bit. Oh, when I look a little bit, oh, I don't like it too much. I don't like it too much. Oh, but I'm willing to look a little bit more. Oh, now I feel disappointed. And when I let myself feel disappointed, as you did, oh, I feel kind of warm about this. My tenderness for myself, my compassion for myself, big word compassion, but my tenderness for myself starts to emerge and I feel it as warmth. In this case, you might feel it differently. Others might feel it differently, but you felt it as kind of warmth. And then it's a kind of like, a kind of acceptance, like, yeah, you're not perfect, but you're okay the way you are. And the judging and the defenses and the positioning start to fall away, at least temporarily. And that's the emerging of compassion. Beginning face, face of it. It's exactly, it's a beautiful example. Thank you. Beautiful example. And it's that acceptance or that, you know, kind of seeing ourselves clearly. I'm not perfect, but I am the way I am. That allows us to actually keep opening to more of our experience. The other shuts the doors. If you don't stop this question... I'm going to punch you in the nose. Yeah? Yeah. When we kept going a little bit, not, and he's not making you do it. He's just asking a question, right? 
in his presence, actually, or our, if we were doing that with ourselves, our presence would cause us to keep inquiring. And as we touch the suffering, it hurts, we don't like it, we want to get away from it, and then something else emerges in relationship to it. And then it's compassion. And whenever we genuinely touch the suffering, it will emerge. Is that the something larger you were referring to earlier? Yeah. Yeah, in other words, something larger than our identification with the suffering. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, this goes with teaching kindergarten. This goes with teach, working with the dying. This goes with, you know, being with our mothers. <laughs> it's all the same work, in a way, which is if I'm willing to touch the experience... It doesn't mean like it's suddenly going to go away, all the pain in our life. That's not what we're suggesting. But our relationship to it will start to shift. And our identification with the suffering will start to shift. Because compassion loosens this identification. Oh my gosh. could we spend like another two or three hours on this? <laughs> Anything else anybody wants to say at the very end before we close? Yes. Right. What I was using for them is not very skillful. The way right. I was using them to escape from suffering is not skillful. Right. They'll do those things just to be aware that they were using them to escape. Beautiful. That's, so when I, for example, I said haagen Now I think haagen is a gift from the gods, personally. I think it comes down, you know, from the mountain. <laughs> now, I think, but I can misuse it. Yeah. It's not the, the fall of the haagen you know. So, this is where we come back to our first night's discussion that intention really is a big factor here. Yeah? And the second night's discussion was about role or identification when I get really identified with. I think I've got to have the haagen That's the only thing that really solves the problem. That's the identification. So, the same thing can be a cause of suffering or something that helps eliminate suffering. Not the thing. All right, I have one more question for you. And that was, how was it to get the thank you? You were going to say that. What were you going to say? Uh, well, Briefly, because oh, we have to go. I was going to say getting the thank you. Well, what was it like? So, that's, that's easy. Um, what, what's easy about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, it, it, because I was identifying. Right. Because I had just gone through the discomfort of feeling, you know, you're trying to remember what you said, and you're, you remember your heart, your heart, your head, and your feelings. Yeah. You know, and, and, your, and your body. You've got, and yeah. And sort of like all jumbled up. So, what was it like to say the thank you, though, Ian? Uh-huh. After asking this question, it was more like watching for 
Yeah. Yeah, so that's the so there's a healthy part of that which is the compassionate response to someone's hurting. The doubt what we, we get mixed up in that when we get fixed into fixing. And that's we talked about this the first night. Alright, because we have to go, I'm gonna ask this question one more time. Did anybody have anything to say about the thank you? They liked it, didn't like it, anything? Yes. That it was specific to the thank you. It was Uh-huh. Yeah. But so you felt it like an emerging smile or something like yeah. that. Okay. Did you want to say something briefly? Because we really have to stop. Go ahead. Oh, right. Good for you. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So this is the voice of non-judgmental attention. We don't think anybody wants to hear our suffering. We don't really believe people want to hear our suffering. And so we have the response that you said. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing that up. However, when someone tells us something and we simply say thank you in a genuine way, we're neither approving or disapproving. We're just receiving. And that in itself is healing. In other words, imagine if in your meditation practice, when something's emerging, an emotional state, a state of mind, a state of body, your primary label that you used was thank you. Well, no matter what shows up here, <laughs> thank you. In other words, it's not second-guessing reality. It's, accept- it's saying, yes, this too, yes, this too, thank you. And it's an encouragement for you to keep exploring as opposed to you know, when I wince my eyes at you and I subtly or not so subtly pass some judgment on what you're giving me. When I listen in this way, in effect with a thank you, it is non-judgmental attention. And, it, and the person feels, oh, okay, you actually, you, you can hear, you have room to hear more of this? Okay, I'll tell you more. Yeah? All right, we have to stop. I'm so sorry to keep you over. Um, uh, on the uh, yeah, on your seats there was a flyer, and if you want one or you want to give it to somebody else, it's fine. Those of you who really want to explore death and dying work, I'm going to do a one day program at CIIS, and those flyers explain them. I'll see you next week, and we'll talk about the fourth quality. Thank you. Uh, oh, oh, homework. <laughs> Jennifer just reminded me of homework. Um, oh, and, and and you reminded me of something else. The homework is this: when you go through your day. I want you to pick three categories of things. Your work, your personal life, just two. Your work and your personal life. Just, just pick those. And ask yourself this question. Tell me a way you avoid suffering. And see what you notice. And maybe if you like, you could journal about it a little bit. Just to sort of see what are the strategies that you use. And I bet you use different ones, or some of the same ones, but different ones in different environments. Okay? So check that out. We'll, we'll check it next week. Also, she was going to remind us that there's a Donna basket over there, and Donna would really like to get your contributions. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.